Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. My name is Brian Cerberus Wilson, and I'm joined by the effortlessly handsome Fokian Dionysus again. Uh, Fokian, how are you? Glad to be back. I'm doing well. Thanks for agreeing or inviting me to teach this great course. All right. that's I'm so glad you're here. So Fokian and I are going to be teaching a four-session course called Understandings of Modern Liberty. Today, we'll be discussing Benjamin Constant's essay, the ancient or the liberty of the ancients compared with that of the moderns. Um, so Fokian is going to give us a little overview of uh, Constant uh, to begin with. So Fokian, what what do you what can you tell us about this great man? He was pretty great. He was a Frenchman uh, living in the eighteen hundreds. Kind of, he was not a noble. So we read you, when, a lot of times when you're reading. Enlightenment French thinkers, you're reading nobles of some one sort or another, but Constant was not a member of the noble class. He sort of rose through his own merits during the revolutionary period. He was a supporter of the revolution. He's very Republican, but like intelligent men of that time, he opposed the excesses, you could say. Um, and for that, he was favored uh, by Napoleon for a while, you know. I don't think there was a successful French political movement during his life that d didn't make use of him at some time. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, he was a great collaborator with women. He basically, every time he had a paramour, they like started writing things together. So a lot uh -huh. of his writing is either lost to history or has not been popular, so to speak. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think his longest standing, uh, Love was the famous Madame de Stael. I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly. The one who gets, you know, castigated by Nietzsche and rightist thinkers for being such a fuddy-duddy and these kinds of things. Um, mm -hmm. But in this piece, which is titled The Liberty of the Ancients as Compared with That of the Moderns. I might have... Uh, anyway, yeah, The Liberty of the Ancients Compared with That of the Moderns. It was given in, it was a speech. It's uh, based on a speech given in 1819. So near the end of his sort of public career. And in it, he tries to summarize or defend the, his view of what has gone or what went so terribly wrong with the French Revolution and the revolutionaries. Um, as the title suggests, it is a comparison of two forms of liberty. So at the outset, you get the impression that he's talking about liberty, but that liberty is not liberty. That is to say, the liberty for some may not be the liberty for others. And what his argument basically is, is that the French revolutionaries, their lead ideologists, we would call them that maybe today, mm -hmm. some of their leading men were trying to impose ancient ideas of liberty on modern political conditions. And this is what resulted in the incapacity of the government to rule and its bloody excesses. So what, what I believe is really important is not only does he, and we'll talk about this a lot more as we go, but not only does he come around to a very, I think, compelling definition of liberty, but he does a good job of showing how political circumstances matter, which is important for us today insofar as we are too easily caught up in abstract principles or theories. There's nothing, obviously, there's nothing wrong with political theory. That's what we're talking about today. But if it gets so detached from the circumstances, it becomes sort of the fevered dreams of lunatics. And uh, right. Constant does a really good job of defending his idea of liberty in the face of, you could say, um, these kinds of ideologues who don't really know how to apply their notions of justice to the circumstances they face. Now, I know that uh, he is a modern, and he is an Enlightenment personage or a thinker. So this comes with inevitable uh, baggage. And I think mm -hmm. uh, 
Mr. Brian Cerberus Smith has something to say about that in particular. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really like your, your thought on the, the circumstances mattering a lot for Constant. And we'll definitely talk a lot about circumstances, especially at the end of the uh, episode about whether or not, well, if you don't like modern things, can you return? Or to what extent is that kind of thing possible? But we'll talk about that later. So to begin with, we thought it would be good to talk a little bit about, since he says he's comparing these two liberties, uh, we should talk about what they are. And he has two paragraphs that provide a pretty powerful distillation of what the essence of these liberties are. So when Constant and Fokin, you should add anything that you think that I miss um, in this, but um, the essence of modern liberty, uh, you see a focus on economic matters and private matters. Uh, and there is the right in this word, right, uh, to be subjected only to laws. Uh, there's a right to the freedom of speech, association, property, religion. And he says to follow your whims without owing an account of why you do what you do to anybody. It also includes the right to exercise some influence on the administration of government through petition or representation. And he notes as well that this right includes demands to which the authorities are more or less compelled to heed. Okay, so Fokin, would you add anything to this at least basic account of his statement on modern liberty? I think that sounds pretty complete. Uh, these kind of minor or secondary role of the citizens in their government and the constituent freedoms that come from that. Yeah, I think that I like it. Right. Okay. So now when he talks about the essence of ancient liberty, I at least felt my heart moved. I was not moved by his account of the essence of modern liberty, but this might be a problem of my own. But at any rate, the essence of ancient liberty is exercising collectively, but directly several parts of the complete sovereignty in deliberating in the public square over war and peace, in forming alliances with foreign governments, in voting laws, in pronouncing judgments, in examining the accounts. It already sounds to me much weightier and more elevated. Um, now, whereas Constant felt no need to remind us, at least at the outset of the essay, of any trade-offs or costs associated with modern liberty, though he will later, he is at pains to draw our attention to the drawbacks and trade-offs of ancient liberty. As he points out, all private actions in the ancient world were submitted to a severe surveillance. No importance was given to individual independence, neither in relation to opinions, nor to labor, nor, above all, he says, to religion. And um, Constant goes as far as to say, among the ancients, the individual, almost always sovereign in public affairs, was a slave in his private relations. So for all this vaunted and beautiful freedom that you see at the outset of his account of the ancients, he still wants to insist that there's something low, at least about the ancient person's private life. Um, Fokin, is there anything that you would add to the account of ancient liberty? Not especially, but I, f I find it really interesting that he, he says that they are slaves because one of the big things he's going to point out is how uh, they owned slaves and, we, and that we're going to get rid of slavery, I guess, altogether in the modern world. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and it reminds me in a way, well... So he says you're going to get rid of slavery and this this is a great good, but then he fails to mention, or maybe, I don't know, you can't help but suddenly think like, oh, so free men will do the jobs of slaves and they're going to enjoy that. Um, so it seems like it's hard to remove some of the, I guess, problems that slavery was meant to solve or something like that, even if in a tenuous way. Right. And especially, you know, the ancient people, they wouldn't call themselves slaves, even though they were, you could say, ruled by the law or they had no, say, private affairs or something. So if he calls that slavery, because typically you would think the difference between, you know, a slave and a worker is that the worker at least doesn't suffer under the shame of being absolutely enslaved. You know, he right. can say to him, you know, these kinds of things. Which, um, of course, the people of the ancient polis 
they have the same, if not greater, honor of not being slaves, of being of the citizen class. So it is a it's it does strike me as very odd that he would call them this this as slaves. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, yeah, it seems like a striking move to try to. Uh, I don't know, call our attention away from what he says later in the essay. He has a kind of beautiful passage. I'll just read a tiny bit of it. He says, one could not read the beautiful pages of antiquity. One could not recall the actions of its great men without feeling an indefinable and special emotion, which nothing modern can possibly arouse. And so it may be precisely because of this feeling that he knows can be aroused and that Rousseau and some of his lesser disciples aroused so powerfully in many that he sort of has to bring out, nope, this is a kind of slavery. You don't want to be a slave. Slavery is bad. And so in this way, it could be a statement designed to guard against the great attractiveness of the nobility of the ancients. Yeah, I think that that's, if not plausible, if not the most plausible, a plausible account. I don't, you know, his right, he, he wrote and spoke a lot. So I, and I haven't, gone over his works or anything like that, but he might very well have a sort of delicate rhetorical, I mean, he probably does. He was a very <laughs> uh, successful statesman of sorts, but he, he probably has a rhetorical purpose in denigrating and denigrating what he so clearly believes is beautiful. Right. Right. And, that, and that's why Constance so worth taking seriously, I guess, is that he understands, as you pointed out earlier, the circumstances and how they've changed, while at the same time having, you know, seeing the beauty of the ancients in a way that maybe not all modern people do. Um, so um, by taking on the great task of comparing ancient liberty to modern liberty, Constant claims to understand both. He says many times in his speech that he doesn't have time to prove many of his claims. What he is offering are the conclusions of long reflections, reflections that must remain hidden from the reader who has only read uh, this particular speech. It follows that he will offer the essence or distillation of each kind of liberty as we sort of just went over, and he's compelled by the constraints of the occasion to oversimplify the character of each kind of liberty. Such simplifications or generalizations are highly useful for situating oneself within the whirly gig of time. As indispensable as I think Foki and I both think that it is uh, to closely read primary sources, it can also be nice to help oneself to some more general observations um, or to look at ideas from a bird's eye view. Now, keeping in mind the limits that were imposed on Constant and that he may have imposed on himself, I would still like to pummel him just a tiny bit for at least one overly simplistic uh, simplification. So this, this is a fairly low-hanging piece of fruit, but since, uh, well, well, I'll just go into it for just a minute, and, uh, and Fokin, you can comment, and we can sort of like move into the next phase after that. Um, so a few pages into the essay, Constant begins to say that a distinctively modern enterprise is commerce. It's, you know, it's obviously not the case that no ancient people pursued commercial goals, but that only in modernity um, is there somehow a possibility, as Constant suggests, that commerce will replace war as the means by which nations can get what they want. As Constant says, uh, commerce is a milder and surer way to get what one wants. And he goes further than this a page later, saying that today commerce is the normal state of things, the only aim, the universal tendency the true life of nations. They want repose and with repose comfort and as a source of comfort, industry. I suppose that the core statement to take issue here with is that commerce is the only aim of modern nations. Um, for a contemporary example, one only has to think of, I don't know, something like Brexit uh, or something like that. Um, and the incessant NPR radio talk or Washington Post articles about how, did you guys know Um that if they leave the European Union, everybody will make less money? Did you know that? Did you know that? Um, this is you know, constantly a harangue. Um, and therefore, they thought it was an insane maneuver. So sure, it could be economically bad, especially in the short term. But what this kind of thinking leaves out 
is that there are other goods besides the economic that are sometimes much, much more valuable, even or especially to modern people, even people in our own age and time. Um, you know, freedom is a pretty sweet and beautiful thing, uh, I guess you could say, and worth enduring economic discomfort for. And so then this thing that Foki and I were talking about before the episode started, Constant has this crazy phrase, war is all impulse, uh, commerce, calculation. What? What is he doing, Fokin? Why would he say something like this? Why would he say that war is all impulse, commerce is calculation? It's almost well, like he's saying that, you know, you're like a wolf or something, like you're some unthinking or uncivilized brute um, or something like that who just acts on their whims. Yeah, there's this bizarre modern, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Prejudice. There's a There's a modern prejudice against the thoughtfulness of the ancients. And it, it, you can even find it somewhat in, in Nietzsche who says man wasn't really deepened until Christianity or Christianity affected this great deepening of man. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I, I don't know if that kind of thinking holds real water, but there is this sort of, they just, ha- it was simpler times, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and especially, it's a strange thing insofar as like Nietzsche is such a great admirer of Thucydides. And just even thinking about the Spartans and their choice to go to war or not to go to war. And Archidamus is like, no, we need to wait, you know, like we're going to be on the wrong side of things. It's going to be unjust if we attack now. And Stenelaus is like, no, we must attack. But he, but they both say these things in much more beautiful and eloquent ways. Um, but uh, it seems to me since Constant is a smart guy, he probably wouldn't go to the hilt to defend the absolute truth of this formulation uh, that war is all impulse. Rather, maybe to go with our earlier discussion of his rhetoric or something like that, it could be a nice chosen or intentional propagandistic assertion that prepares the reader for what immediately follows when he says, hence it follows that an age must come in which commerce replaces war. We have reached this age. Um, so maybe, again, this is he's sort of trying to s- appeal to this sort of prejudice of his listeners of like, well, I'm a civilized guy. I like to calculate. I like to think. I don't act on my impulses. I control myself sometimes. And so maybe it's, a, again, a kind of statement to push people towards n- not thinking that the ancient view is without its drawbacks or something like that. Yeah, I think I do think much of his promotion of what he calls individual liberty for the moderns and his corresponding denigration of ancient, of some, you know, some of the qualities of the ancients. I think this is very much a part of his maybe forced, but optimism. Because if you find, if you find yourself in a time that's degraded from what could be best, should you just say, well, we're bad and we're, we have, there's nothing to do. I think you have to <laughs> kind of pick, you have to pick, you have to pick what the best option is. And considering the uh, impatience of most listeners and readers, you kind of have to pretend like the second or third best option is the best option to really inspire them, you know? Mm-hmm. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um. So I think you, Fokian, had some thoughts about um, modern individual liberty um, and citizenship or something like that. Is that right? Yeah. What I, what I really like about Constant, apart from all of the wicked things you just said about him, is that <laughs> uh, um, he defends what we would call, you know, liberal right or our liberal freedoms. He defends them in a unique way, in a, in a refreshingly open way, as compared to somebody like Locke or Hobbes, who more or less in their natural right doctrines say, these are the only legitimate basis for government. So you get the impression that all sort of, you know, the Spartan government was simply totalitarian or uh illegitimate of some mm-hmm. sort. So what, how Constant explains 
the source of liberal freedoms or individual liberty, that this is where I think he's, or why I think he's so important. So the reason we have to pivot to individual liberties, the things you, the things you mentioned, like, uh, you could sum them up in the word whim, but things like freedom of religion, freedom of speech, our first amendment freedoms, so to speak. Mm-hmm. We have these, according to Constant, not because providing them to citizens is the only legitimate thing to do. We have them because the citizens are no longer as full citizens as the ancients were. So you can kind of, he kind of, I think he tries to hide it or cover over it a little bit. But the simple fact is, is that modern citizenship is degraded. And because it's degraded, you cannot ask them to perform the same duties and make the same sacrifices as the ancient citizens made. Mm-hmm. They just don't get the same benefit from their citizenship. And so therefore, it's maniacal to pretend to make them pretend as if they're getting the whole shebang and they should sacrifice all private pleasure to the public good. I mean, right. you can't ask people to do that if the public good isn't really good for the public. Um, <laughs> and this is that just reminded me of something of just like, what would it be like if uh, Themistocles or in this case, Joe Biden said, everybody, you all have to take just a couple things and we're all going to wait on boats uh, on the Pacific coast while we, you know, sort out this battle with the Russians or something like that. (laughs) It's unthinkable, um, like what the Athenians did to us, I think, in a way. Like to sacrifice everything, um, almost, in order to do these kinds of things. It's unthinkable, yeah, it's unthinkable. And when you think of it, it's beautiful. This idea that your whole community can be like, what matters is the survival of us. And, of course, they were not... I don't, I'm sure that the average Athenian in the escape from Athens before the arrival of the Persians, I'm sure that they weren't like, this is really nice. What a nice <laughs> community. <laughs> um, but it is a beautiful act. It's a beautiful deed that they were, they were able to take their ships and preserve the real Athens. Because, right. but I mean, if I don't think any rational person, this is one thing, you know, you, it's simply role playing to pretend like you feel that way for your fellow Americans or something. So, right. But we'll talk about how that we'll talk about that a little bit later. Right. Um, so. Constant, he develops these two concepts, individual liberty, which is fit for modernity and political liberty, which was what the ancients had. Mm-hmm. And so the big question for a reader of Constant, but really just a big question we can ask ourselves is, is it possible that individual liberty is just superior to political liberty or that it can actually even replace political liberty? And this is, Constant really drives home that they're not separable. That individual liberty depends on political liberty. You don't get it without it, or you don't get individual liberty without it. So that's that's what gives me the impression that he views modern forms of government and modern political arrangements as basically inferior to what the ancients had, but uh, something that we just have to learn to make the best of and we can now and here he he does give a sort of improved science of politics uh federalist papers idea where what we can do now we know a little bit more than the ancients and so we can accomplish something new and different mm-hmm. this of course i think is a questionable premise um but let me let me read this quote about you can say the the internal connection between the two types of liberty. Mm-hmm. He writes, individual liberty, I repeat, is the true modern liberty. Political liberty is its guarantee. Consequently, political liberty is indispensable. But to ask the peoples of our day to sacrifice, like those of the past, the whole of their individual liberty to political liberty, 
is the surest means of detaching them from the former and once this result has been achieved, it would only be too easy to deprive them of the latter. Hmm. So this this is the, I think, perplexity at the center of this essay. If individual liberty relies so much on political liberty, mm-hmm. then aren't the people who have less political liberty worse off, at least in the urgent matter of necessity, than the ancients who had it in a much greater degree? I don't know if you had anything. Like, is there is there a way in which... And this is typically the typically liberal way of thinking. Necessity is for the dogs. Uh, the baubles and unnecessary pursuits of life are for the gods or for, you know, the people approximating them. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wonder if in some sense, Constant doesn't think, oh, political liberty is what's important, practically speaking, but individual liberty is what's beautiful. However, does he ever call individual liberty and all of the liberal freedoms, does he ever call them beautiful and noble in the same way he calls the ancient liberty beautiful? I don't, I can't recall, but I don't think he does. Here's uh, the closest passage. Um, it's, it's a very bizarre passage to me. Um, it's like a, a paragraph where he's talking about happiness. And he says that happiness I don't know that it's not a very elevated course to pursue happiness. It should not be our only aim. And so with that, it seems like he has like a notion of happiness. That's I suppose different from a classical view of happiness, but here's, here's what he says that gets close to what you're saying. When he says, we're not just going to pursue happiness. And then here's the quote. No, sirs, I bear witness to the better part of our nature, that noble disquiet, which pursues and torments us that desire to broaden our knowledge and develop our faculties. It is not to happiness alone. It is to self-development that our destiny calls us. Um, And then he says, and political liberty is the most powerful and most effective means of self-development that heaven (laughs) has given us. That's crazy. So first he's like, the most noble thing that you can do in a way almost is to exercise your capacity for self-development, which will lead to something other than or different than happiness. And yet he also says at the same time that it's political liberty, which might provide the superior means by which we would uh, develop ourselves. Yeah. The but only this, way the only time he calls individual liberty noble that I know of in the essay. Yeah, I think you're right. And the only but way of squaring that. Saying, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. As you say, the only way of squaring that is that he might, he gives over and over again the impression and he says explicitly that political liberty is of the ancients individual liberty of the moderns like i just read that quote individual liberty the true modern liberty political liberty is its guarantee oh there he doesn't say that political liberty is of the ancients but uh let me read this other one that he does individual independence is the first need of the moderns consequently one must never require from them any sacrifices to establish political liberty Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> but here, what you just read is that their individual self-development is best promoted by political liberty. Yes. Very so awesome. even when he tries to call individual liberty noble, he ends up saying it's at its noblest when it's oriented towards political liberty or exercising rule um, or something like that. Which is a kind of, I, I don't know, concession to what you were suggesting earlier that he might be aware that there's something better about what the ancients were doing. And yet uh, he has to praise what the moderns are doing in as much as there may not be a genuine alternative in that moment. Yeah, I don't, I really don't think that there was a genuine alternative. And I think he did what intelligent men do when they are screwed they got to make the best of it (laughs) (laughs) i mean certainly he didn't view the situation as debased as i just put it but uh i there's this is there's a mania in our own time where people 
are casting about for answers. And I just am not at all sure that there is a clear answer <laughs> to be had. Just because yeah. you need an answer doesn't mean uh, the world will provide one. But we're, we'll talk about that uh, more later. Right. Um, so I just let me wrap up my little section here. And I know you have a, a sort of larger, broader uh, gloss or point on what you had made, what you had said earlier. So to reiterate, when you have, when you read people like Hawk, Hawk, Locke or Hobbes? <laughs> Hawk and Lobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> when you have those kinds of uh, very famous, very successful liberal philosophers, what they did in each case was set down what they claimed was the bare minimum government must do. And, it, and that included providing, in, the, in each case, specific rights to the citizens or protecting specific rights of the citizens. And in Locke, they become liberal rights of life, liberty, property, pursuit of happiness, and so on. But what's refreshing is about Constant is that he explains that liberal rights come from a lack of political liberty. So a lack of participation in ruling. And I hmm. think that it's very, it's a rare glimpse into what actually motivated liberalism. What's so nice about Constant, to reiterate, is that he gives in this piece a rare glimpse into what motivated political, liberal political philosophy. Uh, and that is the need to motivate or to organize these extremely large societies where the vast majority of people in them had they had no ability and no way of participating in rule so what do you do they, this mass of people either drags you down or they become productive and active in some way in the life of the nation so when you have these circumstances faced by liberal political philosophers are, I think, I mean, at least if Constant is right, and it, to me it seems pretty clear, that th this is the only way for society, the only way forward for society, for mass society. So with that in mind, uh, I'll kick it back to Cerberus, who's got uh, something to say about uh, this general idea behind Constant's view. Yeah, so... I think you talking about the motivation of liberal political philosophers uh, is a good kickoff point to say, you know, in a, in a certain sense, like what is modern liberty for or what does Constant think are the goals of modernity? So uh, we had spoke of commerce before. One of the core things that Constant says had hindered commerce in the ancient world was lack of technology. There was no compasses, none of them, no compasses whatsoever, uh, at least, you know, up to a certain point. And so it was uh, very difficult to make the kind of journeys that really open pathways to the kind of trade that really fuels commerce. With the development of technology, commerce gains a new lease on life and carries many nations upward, uh, or especially European nations, or maybe, maybe only, he seems to only talk about European nations in this essay. Yeah. With the increase of power and comfort that commerce brings, it has given nations customs and habits which are almost identical. The heads of state may be enemies. The peoples are compatriots. Well, that's a, a quote from Constant. So that's a pretty big statement that the peoples are identical, but the heads of states um, are not. So Constant seems to be saying in this very fruitful quote um, that the new private sphere of individual liberty that opens up everywhere, or at least in Europe, is relevantly similar in all places. The people thus undergo pretty severe or serious homogenization. A retreat from political life reduces a people's attachment to their own way. They start to care more about these private experiences, more about their baubles or something like that, that the gods like to play with, um, as you had put it earlier. Um, and so 
this, uh, I guess, increased time spent in the private sphere gives the people less experience in the things that make their people distinct from others. As Constant suggested, the ancients tried to mold their citizens. Uh, he says you know, that they're almost like machines or something like that. And I might add that the ancients molded them to be ready for a particular task. Now, you might have noticed too that Constant said that it's only the heads of state who feel like enemies, those who still exercise sovereignty, those who still rule in political life, unlike those who attend almost only to the private sphere. And obviously, all of you know this kind of argument from people like Woodrow Wilson much later uh, in his war message. You know, the German people, not our enemies. Their leaders are our enemies in World War I. Um, and obviously, uh, Eric Maria Remark talks about this in All Quiet on the Western Front, that there's just these cruel elites who dress up young men uh, in different colored uniforms and make them fight. Uh, Remark says, I really wish that those leaders would just uh, fight themselves in the arena and have it done with. It's a silly way to put it, but um, I don't know. I can't help Fokian, but think that, and, and maybe I, I like by reading, you know, Strauss and Kojev have this just sort of sense of the, whenever I, I see homogenization like this, whenever I see a thinker consistently talk about um, mankind repeatedly in an essay and talk about the moral and intellectual progress of the human race as Constant does. And he, he also talks about, uh, that mankind has, I think the way he puts it, has acquired greater moral and physical means. He's not talking about France. He's talking about mankind. Like So in this way, it seems to me, now he doesn't say anything about a world state, but if he is saying that all the peoples of Europe, at least those who don't exercise any rule, are kind of all the same, it, I don't know. It just my nose sniffs out like, oh, this points to a unified world or a world state or a world that's not broken up into distinct parts. Um, I don't know. If, it, does that seem like an overstatement to say that Constant is pointing towards a world state, or am, am I just being overly uh, critical of anything that points towards like some kind of homogenization? Well, I would agree that some of his arguments would have to eventually terminate in in the need for a world state. I mean, for example, if commerce is gives the impression that commerce is superior to war. Right. If it is, then very clearly uh, independent states are best done away with. Right. Because they war, but you don't you can have a global commerce all under one ruler. That'd be great in a way. It's more efficient. Right. Like these rulers are getting in the way of these similar people who would just like to trade stuff and make money so that they can like live a cool life where they develop themselves. Yeah. And local independence always frustrates these kinds of things. Just imagine how annoyed some massive corp, you know, massive business owners are when they're like, it's like your Walmart or something. You're like, I just want to go into this small town and eat up that marketplace, but they won't let me, you know, something like that. Right. Yeah, and and to say one last thing uh, about this, just a sort of brief quote from the end, like uh, Constant, uh, like on the third to last page, at least in my edition, talks about the danger of individual liberty, or rather, he puts it of modern liberty in this section. Uh, but I, I think these two terms are interchangeable, more or less. Uh, the danger of modern liberty is that, absorbed in the enjoyment of our private independence and in the pursuit of our particular interests, we should surrender our right to share in political power too easily. Um, so you could say that um, the danger of individual liberty uh, or modern liberty is that men exclusively concerned with securing their share of social power might attach too little value um, to defending their individual rights, um, which are required to continue maintaining their enjoyments. Um and so they could become too soft and unconcerned to do what's required to retain the minimal amount of political liberty that's required to protect and sustain individual liberty. Something I think that you and I had talked about before, Fokian, was something like uh, in his distillation of individual liberty, Constant says at one moment something like, uh, and the people who represent the people are going to have to he take heed of those who call on them to represent them. 
that they'll be more or less compelled, he says. But he says very little about the compulsion, you know, like maybe something like the U.S. Second Amendment is like made with a view to the requirements of maintaining political liberty should those who claim to represent you, you know, betray you or something along those lines. Um, yeah. So I, anyway, so in, in that way, I guess it seems like Constant sort of showing how even he can see to some extent how individual liberty, if it's taken too far or in excess, points to pod life or something like that. In which you don't really care who rules over you as long as you have your enjoyments. And there's a real... There seems to be a, a relatively strong argument to not care, right? Like, Yeah. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> let's say we all know people who are fanatic about their sports teams or whatever. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you, you have no role. You affected it not at all. It's really mm-hmm. kind of weird that you're that invested. I'm the 12th man, Fokian. I am the 12th man. <laughs> yeah, right. But like, it's when you live in these mass societies, especially ours today, I think a lot of people think the same thing about people who are obsessed with politics. You know, it's like, we're at Thanksgiving, dad. Like, can't we just talk about the turkey and about family things? Like, why do you got to talk about politics? We have nothing to do mm-hmm. with politics. It's a little sad that you're so obsessed with this or that. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and so a lot of, I've encountered this among friends and things like that. Who are, There are people who I know I don't want to talk about politics with because it just makes them uncomfortable. And they, they kind of think it's, you know, not the word base, but vulgar. You know, they think it's kind of a silly thing to worry yourself over. Right. Right. I guess that makes me think, well, I don't know that, uh, like I find myself so preoccupied with the idea of this movement of modern thought moving towards something like a world state or a homogenous universal state or something like that. But I wonder, like, sometimes I fear that I'm worried about, like, a kind of abstraction that 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 very well could come to be. And that might be the thought that animates the left at the moment in a certain sense. But that's so big and I'm so small. Um, But at the same time, I guess you can see tendencies even in your everyday life that are actually very local and very a part of your life um, that maybe ultimately point towards getting rid of politics or something like that. So even... You can oppose something like the world state, maybe even in your local community to some extent um, by protecting certain forms of rule. Um, but but I wonder if this helps us move towards um, the sort of final thing that we wanted to talk about, which I think uh, folk and you to put it this way yesterday. Um, we cannot return to Athens. This is not possible for us. But the problem is we can't even return to Constant, I think, as you had put it. so. Uh, what what do you think about this? Like, what are we supposed to do in light of our own circumstances? Or why is it that we can't return to the thought of Constant? Now, we can learn from him, but we can't return to the same conditions under which he was thinking and live in that world. Um, and it seems like maybe, you know, living in 1819 in Paris was probably not so bad. Uh, it was probably pretty awesome, I would say. Um, so we can't return there or to Athens. So, like, why why can't we return? I would like to return. yeah i mean practically speaking you know the things that lobs and hogs you know hobs and lobs (laughs) sorry that was a a bad joke um the 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 societies that hobs and Locke were looking at and the society that constant looked at what they what they viewed as mass society or large society is extremely small compared to what we're dealing with in you know the united states europe china russia these places societies are so big now um (laughs) and all of the guarantees of liberal liberties they're quickly going out the window i mean the most important probably being our militaries are professional militaries they're not they're not citizen militaries Maybe in Israel mm-hmm. or something. I don't know. But they're not citizen militaries, and I don't believe they're going to become citizen militaries again. Everything mm-hmm. that I see points toward um, the military, Western militaries becoming more and more alienated from the populace through uh, purposeful, 
pushing, you know, getting them to view themselves as having pride in themselves, not necessarily pride in their nation. And, um, I mean, we just see the, the, in America, the typical demographic that has always supported the military, the conservatives and the right, that now that they're starting to attack the military in various ways, there's what's, what's, what's going to happen there? I don't know. But the, mm-hmm. the larger point is that the basic precondition for liberal rights or individual liberty, as Constant puts it, these preconditions are, are, if not slipping away, they're long gone. Um, <clears throat> now, what that means for us, you know, I don't, I, I said earlier in the episode that just because things are bad doesn't mean that there's an answer, mm-hmm. which is uh, unsettling, but it may be our problem. But even if there's not an answer, there's still a better and worse thing to do. Right. Right. And you kind of mentioned it in what what you just said. You know, you're thinking about, well, there's this big world state and it's abstract. But can I are there manifestations of this in my locale that I can deal with? And I think mm-hmm. obviously there are. I mean, I read in my local newspaper yesterday that. As it turns out, the local school board where I am has a rule that schools don't have to report to parents uh, if they're giving the kids different genders and different names. Mm-hmm. And I don't live in a very big place. I don't, you know, it's, it's right. really surprising. So there's a sense in which um, things are so bad that there are, there are many opportunities to fight. <laughs> right. Um, but more importantly... I don't believe in spending huge amounts of time thinking up practical solutions. I believe in uncovering what is best and best possible in terms of ways of living or the virtues or the excellences of men and communities, and then just asserting this over and over again against whatever decline and degeneration you're facing and i think that that constant assertion will eventually either get you know stamped out or it will begin to mold the political circumstances accordingly mm-hmm. right so uh, it's like you can't say i don't know I, yeah but <laughs> Uh, like you can't say like I would like a return to direct democracy in a country of 300 million uh, human beings. Uh, this is yeah, not go shoot yourself. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so that seems crazy. And um, so then it seems like kind of to what you're saying that there might be still a sense in which you can as an individual and uh, with your friends cultivate or revive some kind of classical disposition or mindset uh, or way of life in the midst of new circumstances um, without necessarily saying you're trying to make a return to the same conditions under which maybe that disposition originally occurred. And there might be a way in which like, I don't know, like I will never be a Spartan. Um, I have been going to the gym a lot more lately, but it's laughable to think that uh, I'd be a Spartan. I remember when I told my mother when I was a boy, how much I admired the Spartans. She said, you would have been exposed at birth. No, said, no. <laughs> she said that. She said that because she wanted to steer me away from admiring them, I think. But she's a very good woman. Um, but also what she said was true. Like I was, <laughs> my baby weight was not good. Not good. <laughs> but nevertheless, I mean, I mean, what, what else can you do then? Restore the disposition towards excellence in yourself and pursue tasks uh, with your friends and try to make the psychic and physiological soil better to the extent possible. I mean, in a way that's kind of like a lame way to put it, but I guess that's all in a way that I have in mind at the moment, uh, as far as this goes to say about it. But um, what do you think? Yeah, I think practically speaking, it's hard to say, you know, practically speaking, if you're acting, for example, if you're making Montana classical college, or if you, are running a like a workout group in your hometown or if you're doing these kinds of these kinds of 
local, basically private uh, affairs, at the very least, you free yourself from some of the, I don't know, the web that's been woven. And if there's ever someone who has enough strength and gravitas, like a Napoleon or a Caesar or something, you know, then at least he might find a nation full of people who are ready for a better task. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And until that arrives, until this great practical solution in the form of a great man arises, it's still better to be active with friends and uh, psychologically and philosophically free from the crazy shit that gets peddled today. Yes, that sounds beautiful. So you all must uh, come to Montana Classical College uh, and uh, pursue an education in great tasks. So I think Fogin and I, next time, we're going to be talking about Isaiah Berlin's essay called The Two Concepts of Liberty. The third section of the course will talk about Leo Strauss's essay called Relativism, in which he criticizes Isaiah Berlin. And then finally, we'll look at David Sidorsky's essay, The Third Concept of Liberty, in which he suggests that there's been another ideological evolution, could be the wrong word, but an ideological shift in what comes next as far as liberty is thought of in the modern world. So in this course, we hope to situate you uh, within, I guess you could say, yeah, the, the changing ideas that people hold about modern liberty. And it starts with constant and that modern liberty does its best to distinguish itself from ancient liberty and that that's one of its trademarks. So that was, I suppose, an important thing to capture here. And then we will talk about Isaiah Berlin and the evolution or change, rather, of uh, liberty. Sounds great to me. I'm really glad to be back. Okay. Okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is awesome. So, uh, Foki and I bid you adieu, and we are out.